Well, this morning we're uh, coming back to the book of Romans for the last little while. We've been looking at the book of Genesis 1 to 12. We're going to come back to that next year. But earlier in the year, uh, we got up to Romans chapter 6. And so now we're coming back into it this week. Uh, We're going to look at chapter 7 this morning. And then we're going to slow right down uh, and look at chapter 8 over the next three or four weeks. Because it is just such a wonderful passage that we want to really delve deeply into it. Uh, but to come in at chapter 7, which as I say is one of the trickier passages of the Bible, uh, we need a bit of a refresher to get back into Romans and remember what we got up to at chapter 6. So I'm starting my time this morning with a bit of a sort of a catch-up lecture. It's my apology in advance uh, that uh, we're just doing a bit of a catch-up. So what have we learnt in the book of Romans so far? Uh, what we have learnt is the most important news you could ever hear. So what, what the book of Romans, in particular the first Six chapters of Romans we looked at in a year is the fundamentals of the gospel, the the things you need to know, because that's what Romans is, it's why it is so important, it is setting out the very fundamentals of the Christian faith. Uh, And so you might remember, I've used this quote a number of times, I I keep quoting what Martin Luther says about uh, Romans, the great reformer, he said, the book of Romans is our soul's daily bread and it can never be read too often or studied too much. Uh, it is, that is the truth. This is the most important book ever written. I called it earlier in the year. Uh, because what it does is distill for us and capture what it is to be a Christian, what, what it is we believe, who our God is and what Jesus has done. So we are going to do some more of reading it too often and studying it too much. Uh, so what do we learn from the gospel in chapters 1 to 6? You could go back and listen to all my sermons on chapters 1 to 6, or you can listen to this one-minute summary. First thing, three things. We learned about our problem, which is sin. Uh, And that was actually the first couple of chapters of Romans, that every human being is guilty of sin. Every human being is guilty of rejecting our heavenly Father. uh, And so we deserve his righteous wrath and anger and judgment. But then secondly, we learned about God's solution, uh, which is at its heart the death of Jesus And so we learned about some big words that end in shun, if you remember. Uh, And so I'm going to do a bit of a test now. No, I'm only joking. But the big word was, we learned that Jesus' death is a... Some of you did it. Well done. Is a propitiation. Remember that word. All it means is a sacrifice that turns aside the righteous anger of God. Uh, So Jesus' death paid the price for our sin turned aside so, so that he was judged so that we do not need to be judged. And then thirdly, we learnt that we accept that gift by faith alone. So what is the key phrase in the book of Romans? The key phrase is that you are justified by faith. You are declared innocent by faith. You are declared righteous or right with God by faith alone. That's all that word justified means. So the, the point of Romans is you can't be good enough for God. I can't be good enough for God. We all deserve God's righteous judgment. We are still sinners. But if we trust in Jesus, God counts us as righteous. doesn't mean we've become righteous. We still sin. But God looks at us and we have been washed clean in his eyes. So we have our problem, sin and the righteous anger of God. We've got the solution, the death of Jesus. And we've got how we accept it by faith alone. And that is the greatest news ever told. Uh, There there is nothing better than that. Because if God judged the world on the basis of our works, we would all receive what we deserve, which is his anger, his wrath, his judgment. No one would be saved. So praise God for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for the message of Romans 1 to 5 in particular. 
But understanding that truth then raises questions. Uh, and we saw the biggest question back in chapter 6. Sorry, we're nearly at today's sermon. Uh, but chapter 6 asks the question, why not just keep sinning then? Which is actually a really logical question. If, if I'm saved by faith in Jesus, if I'm washed clean by the death of Jesus, if it's not what I do, then why not just keep on living however I want? And so the answer to that was given in Romans chapter 6. And the answer is, when you put your trust in Jesus, you became a new person. So when a person becomes a Christian, their old self dies and you stop being a slave to sin any longer and a new person is born, you become a slave of Jesus. That's why we talk about being born again. That's what it is to be a Christian. It's to be born again. And, and so the point of Romans 6 was, if you're just happy to keep tolerating sin in your life, that's a problem because it suggests you're not a Christian. If you're just happy to keep tolerating sin in your life, it, says, it suggests you haven't actually come to know Jesus. So why do we not just keep sinning? Why do we now try to live for Jesus as Christians? It's not to earn our salvation. It's because Phil, the slave of sin, died 20-something years ago. That person died and a new person was born that day. So why not just keep sinning? Because it's not you anymore if you've come to know Jesus. Hopefully that's got you back into the book of Romans because now we're going to come to chapter 7, which raises the next objection to the wonderful news of the gospel. So let's pray as we come to our passage today, Romans chapter 7. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book of Romans and we thank you for that wonderful news that it teaches us that despite our sin you did not treat us how we deserve but instead sent your son to die for us and enabled us to put our trust in him and so find salvation and we thank you that now we are no longer slaves to sin but instead we are slaves of Jesus so help us now as we grapple with this very difficult passage uh, to think harder about the implications of that for our lives and we pray this in Jesus name amen as we start, I want to play a bit of a game. Uh, you're going to have to trust me. Uh, I want you all to close your eyes. I'm not going to do anything. Close your eyes. Just imagine you're walking into a building you've never been into before. And you come into the foyer and there are three doors in front of you. One has a sign on it saying, welcome. One has a sign on it saying, come this way. And the other sign has a sign saying, no entry, authorised people only. In your mind, stare at those three doors. Welcome, come this way, no entry, authorised people only. Which door are you most interested in? You can open your eyes now. Which door are you most interested in? You, you want to look behind the forbidden door, don't you? Because the other door is going to be boring. But the forbidden door is always more interesting. That's just the way it works. See, isn't it amazing how as soon as someone tells you, don't do that, you want to do it. Once something is forbidden, it becomes very attractive. I remember once on holidays, and we went out for dinner with our family. They were a bit younger then. Uh, and uh, we're sitting there in this pub having dinner, and suddenly the alarm goes off. You know, bam, bam, bam. And I look around, where are we? we better get our kids. And then one of them's not here. Oh, they're in the bathroom where there's a red button. <laughs> and, of course, they had to press it. And it was the alarm to say you're in trouble and you... It's forbidden, it becomes attractive. Tell me I can't do something even though I've never wanted to do it before and I want to do it. And that is the problem with trying to stop sin by making laws for people. 
By just saying to people, don't do that, you actually make it more attractive. And this was the problem with the Old Testament law and Israel. God's law was good. It's a wonderful thing. It came from God. But when it meets sinful human hearts and we are told not to do something, it suddenly becomes the most attractive thing in the world. And that's what this chapter Romans 7 is about. It's about the law of God. All through the book of Romans, this issue of the law comes up over and over again. It's not our issue. Back in the early church, it was a huge issue because so many of the first Christians were Jewish. And so for them, this was a massive issue. Paul and Peter and others kept saying, you don't have to keep the Old Testament law anymore. You don't have to worry about what you eat. You don't have to, to, to worry about special days. You don't have to follow this law anymore. You're saved by grace. It's a free gift of God, not by keeping the law. But a lot of people just couldn't handle that. So it was a massive issue. And then they had this problem. Their problem was, well, then why did God bother with the Old Testament? Why did God bother giving people his law anyway? Why give it to us if all it does is condemn us and if we can't keep it? Now, as I say, that was a massive question in the early church. It's probably not a question that comes up every day. When we're at the life course this afternoon, there'll be lots of people there and they ask all sorts of questions. That's not one we're commonly asked. If you're there, you can ask it. But stick with me because what I want you to see is Often when the Bible asks questions we don't ask, it teaches us things we need to know and didn't realise we needed to know. So come with me. Look on your outline. The first point there is that you are dead to the law. Look from verse 1. It says, Since I'm speaking to those who understand law, brothers, are you unaware that the law has authority over someone as long as he lives? That's fairly obvious. The law only applies when you're alive. Once you die, the law can't put you in jail. The law can't sentence you because you're dead. And so Paul gives the example of marriage in verses 2 and 3. Look there, he says, if you're married under the Old Testament law and you married another person, you'd be guilty of adultery. Uh, the law would catch you. You would face the consequences. But if your husband or wife has died, you're free to remarry. The law doesn't follow you into death, if you like. Death terminates the power of the law. So that's all good. How is it relevant to us? Look at verse 4. It says, therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the crucified body of the Messiah, so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we may bear fruit for God. As I've said, if you remember back when we looked at Romans 1 to 6, Romans is not for lazy readers. You've got to switch your brains on. So come with me. Look at it slowly, what it says. It says, you also were put to death in relation to law. Now, how can that be when I'm still alive? Well, the next bit, you were put to death through the crucified body of the Messiah. So this is an idea from back in chapter 6, where by faith, you are united with Jesus in his death. By faith, we died spiritually. We were crucified with Jesus. And so the point here is, because of that, you haven't just died to sin, you've died to the law. The law is no longer binding on you. It no longer applies to you. You do not have the threat of God's judgment hanging over you anymore, which is the most wonderful news in the world. See, it used to be keep all these laws or face judgment. Now Jesus has taken the punishment of the law, death and judgment of God, Jesus has taken that away. And so if you look at it again, look at the last part of the verse, it then says, so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we may bear fruit for God. See, so we've been freed from the law with all its do's and its don'ts and you can't do this and its punishments, not so that we can just then go and do whatever we want and, and do the things that were forbidden before. No, we've been freed so we can now voluntarily choose to go and bear fruit 
for God, the fruit of godliness. So you see the way the law is, it says, do this, don't do that, or face the consequences. Keep the Sabbath, or or you'll be put to death. Do not commit adultery, or you will be stoned. Uh, Don't injure your neighbour, or the same injury will be done to you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's, That's the law, but we aren't under the law anymore. Jesus paid the price. He died so we didn't have to. So now we serve in a new way. And if you look there at verse 6, we serve in the way of the Spirit. And the way of the Spirit is, you don't do this or not do that because you fear the consequences. You do this because you want to please the one who died for you. You do this because you have God's Holy Spirit, if you are a Christian, at work within you. Live for God because you know who your loving master is. Live for God because you know he has died to give you a new life. See, the Christian obeys God, and I think most people in the world don't understand this. The Christian obeys God not out of obligation, not out of fear for the consequences. The Christian obeys God with joy because we follow the way of the Spirit versus the way of the law. Now that raises a question, if you think about it. Then why did God give the law to his people? What was the point of it? Did God actually give his people something that was bad and and unhelpful. And that's what this next little section is about. Come with me to verses 7 to 11. Now, as we look at this, keep in mind that picture of the three doors at the start of the sermon. Verse 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, Produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. I hope you see the point he's making. Uh, What does the law do? What does it achieve? The law, which is designed to show us the right way, that's what it's meant to do, the law actually fans the sin in us to greater heights. So we saw this, remember back to our Genesis series, we saw it in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. And so God says, you can have anything you want, in this entire garden, my whole creation, have whatever you want. You can eat from any tree you like except that one tree over there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. If you eat from that one, you'll surely die. And suddenly, what happens? That's the only fruit they want. Mangoes, not sweet enough. Watermelons, not juicy enough. No, 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 I want that one. I want the one you told me I can't have. I would even give up, Adam and Eve, I would even give up access to the tree of life to taste of that fruit. See, the things God's law forbids become the sweetest. So they ate the fruit and then the law required that they die. See how it happens. The law actually incites sinners. Paul says, I wouldn't have known what it was to covet. He doesn't mean I didn't understand what that meant. I remember reading this with our family and they said, yeah, I don't know what it is to covet. Can you explain it? It just means to to want something you've not got. That's not what he means. He's meaning that wasn't a real problem for me until I saw that commandment, don't covet, and then suddenly I want what he's got because suddenly I see that it's against the law. And so what happens? Look at verse 10. Sadly, that law that was meant to bring life, that law that was designed to show us how to live the best way unto God, how to experience God's blessing, suddenly that law demands my death as a sinner who disobeys God. That's how it worked with Adam and Eve. It's how it worked with Israel. It's how it worked with Paul. And how it works, how it works with every one of us. The forbidden fruit always seems so attractive. When I was a teenager, that locked liquor cabinet, 
the fact that it was locked. There must be something worth having in there because it's, out, it's forbidden. That movie that everyone says, it's so explicit it should be banned. Suddenly people who had no interest in it said, I want to see that movie. See, the law fans the sin in our heart to life. So why did God give it to us? Why did, God, why did he give us the Ten Commandments that we read before? Why do we keep reading it? Is the law evil and bad? No. Look at verse 12. It says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. God doesn't give his people bad things, but our sin uses it for evil. So why did God give it? Look with me at verse 13. Therefore, did what is good cause my death? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognised as sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure. Now, that's the point. Here's the point. Look with me closely. This is why God gave the law, even though we knew we couldn't do it, even though we knew it would condemn us. This is why we still read it. The law, by fanning the sin that's already there into life, shows us that we have a problem. That's why God gave us the law. It shows us that we are sinful. It shows us that against God's standards, we don't meet them. It shows us how serious our sin is and it shows us our need for forgiveness. As we see our sinfulness, as we see our need for help, it drives us to seek after God and find his mercy. This is the reality. It's only when we grasp the reality of how sinful we are so only when we grasp just how far short we fall of God's standards, it's only then that you can ever grasp how wonderful Jesus is. It's only when you grasp just how incredible the wrath of God is and how much we deserve the wrath of God that you understand how wonderful the grace of God and the mercy of God is. That's what God's law does. It magnifies our sin and so shows us our need for God's grace. The law doesn't make you godly. The law doesn't give you life, it doesn't give you hope, it doesn't give you forgiveness. It just shows you Jesus who can give you life and hope and forgiveness. That's why we still study the Ten Commandments. That's why we study books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy today. Not because we're bound by it, but because it shows us God's standards and how much we need him. And then it shows us his morality and how to live as his children. But we always need to remember, telling people God's law will never change anyone. It's not our job as the church to go out there and preach God's law to the world because it won't change anyone. The law will never produce godliness because it doesn't deal with the problem of our sinful heart. The only thing that produces true godliness is true conversion. The only thing that produces true godliness is truly coming to know Jesus and truly receiving his Holy Spirit. Then, as we read and hear God's word, we'll seek to live a godly life. And so now... You've become a Christian. I pray you have. If you, uh, if you are here with us for the first time today and you have not become a Christian, we'd love to talk to you about becoming a Christian. But if you have become a Christian, so many here have, you are no longer a slave for Jesus. Slave, you, sorry, that was the wrong way around. You're no longer slaves to sin. You live for Jesus. And so the Christian life is a walk in the park. Is that right? I'm glad a few people said no there. That suggests that a few people are awake and a few people know when I'm speaking heresy. Now you just live a life of perfect obedience, don't you? No. Now you live in God's way in every situation and circumstance, don't you? No. You see, if only. The, the true Christian life 
is a continual struggle against sin. And that's what we see in the second part of chapter 7. Now, as I said before, this is one of the most disputed passages in the Bible. Some people think, in fact, lots of people think, this is not Paul speaking as a Christian. And often I think that's because they can't handle the Apostle Paul being so honest about his sin. You know, holy Apostle Paul being so honest about the realities of his sin. But I want to tell you, for the majority of Christians for the last 2,000 years, this passage has been, for many Christians, including me, uh, this has been the greatest comfort. This little passage, as hard as it is, because there is no place in the Bible that shows the struggle the reality of the struggle of the Christian life more than this one. And it shows us we're not alone as we struggle with sin. So if you've switched off a bit up to now or the person next to you has, give them a nudge. Uh, hopefully, come back for this last part of the chapter because I want you to know this more than anything. Look with me. As I, I'm going to read some of the last six now. Verse 15 says, For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. If you are a Christian, do you know that tension? I do. That's me every day. Or down at verse 18. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Do you know that tension? I do. As a Christian, saved by Jesus' death with the Holy Spirit in me, I am convicted of my need to live God's way every day. As I read the word of God, I'm convicted of things I need to change in my life. But as I try to do it, sometimes I succeed. Praise God. And over time, I see growth in godliness where, where some sins are, are put away with and, and I grow in other areas. But at other times, I find myself failing. And at that moment, I hate what I've thought. At that moment, I hate what I said to that person. I hate what I did to that person. But I still did it. Does anyone know that tension? I pray you do. It's the human experience. See, even though we've died to sin, even though we have God's Holy Spirit, we continue to struggle with sin for our whole life. When we died with Christ, the power of sin to separate us from God died. Praise God. The power of the Lord to condemn us for our sin, that died too. Praise God. A great spiritual change happened as we received the Holy Spirit but it doesn't immediately take away our sinful nature. So we have this little battle going on all the time between our new spiritual selves and our old sinful nature. The Bible uses all sorts of images for it. It talks about your old self and your new self. It talks about the flesh and the spirit. We are at conflict within ourselves. And I want to tell you that conflict is the experience of every true and sincere follower of Jesus. We get up in the morning and we devote our day to God. We read his word and we pray for his help. But every night we then have sin to confess. Despite our best intentions, every night there are thoughts, there, there are words, there's greed, there's pride. There's all sorts of things. We, we come here to church and we hear a sermon that challenges us in some area of our life. and We say, amen, I need to do that. And then the drive home, we sin. And it'd be easy for a non-believer to look at me as a Christian and say, what a hypocrite. And sometimes they'd be absolutely right. But it's not as simple as that. So the Apostle Paul here is making a really important point that helps us distinguish between the sin of a non-believer or even worse, the real hypocrisy of someone who claims to be a Christian but isn't and 
the sin of a sincere Christian. And the key is in verses 16 and 17. He says, And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. So the difference from before you became a Christian to after you become a Christian is now you don't want to do it. Now it grieves you when you do it. Now you do it and you regret it. One commentator I read, he put it like this. He said, even if sinfulness is spread right through me like some horrible cancer, even so that is what it is. It's a cancer, not the real me anymore. It's not the person I've become in Christ. See, the fact that you struggle, the fact that you have turned to God for forgiveness and pleaded with him to help you in your struggle, the fact that you've taken a stand against your sinfulness, the fact that you hate the fact that you sin, that is the proof that you are a Christian. It's the proof that you have the Spirit of God in you. It's the proof that the real you is not your sinful nature anymore. The picture he used here is like a war within us. Look at verse 21. He says, So I discover this principle. When I want to do what is good, evil is with me. That is the Christian life. We live with this tension. On the one hand, we're wholeheartedly committed to the law of Jesus, to the, to the law of God. We, we want to live for Jesus, but sin still impacts us. The Christian life is a fight. But that is different to before you knew Jesus. That's different to before you become a Christian because then there isn't a struggle because then we don't care. What does it matter if there is no God? What does it matter if there is no Lord Jesus? You see, then we were slaves to sin, so we didn't care. So when will this struggle end? Is it going to end in 10 years' time? Is it going to end in 20 years' time? Is it going to end in 30 years' time? No. In fact, the more you mature as a Christian, the more aware you become of the struggle because you become more aware of the reality of your sin. So what's the answer? Look at verses 24 and 25. He says, what a wretched man I am. Makes you think of amazing grace, the hymn. I think that's where he got it from. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this dying body? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh to the law of sin. Who's going to rescue us from these dying bodies? Who will rescue us from this painful struggle? Jesus will when he returns because then then you will be transformed we'll be raised we'll be given new resurrection bodies and we'll be free from our old selves once and for all the bible calls it our glorification see and the bible looks forward to that day more than anything else because it's only then when christ returns that we will be freed from that tension so that we can live lives of perfect obedience to god forever on your outline, and it'll come up one at a time on the screen, I've shared this table that I used for teaching a doctrine course that some of you probably came to at some point back in the day uh, to just talk about the realities of the stages of the Christian life. So in stage one is before we become a Christian and we're a slave to sin, we're under the judgment of God, we're unable to obey God's law or please him. You might think, but hang on, when I wasn't a Christian, I could please, I could do good things and that's true, but you can't please God because how can you please a God you don't worship? doesn't matter what you do, if it's not done for his glory, it doesn't please him. So that's stage one. But then when we become a Christian, stage two, we are justified. We're declared right with God. We're forgiven. We have eternal life secured. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. But now we are in, if you're a Christian, stage three, 
the Christian life, where we're being sanctified, as we're growing in godliness, but it's a struggle between the spirit and the flesh. And we look forward to stage four when Jesus returns, when we'll be glorified without sin and we will live eternal life with no struggle and we'll be renewed in our mind, our spirit and our body. I hope that's helpful just as a summary because what I was trying to do is just capture what we've learned in the book of Romans so far as we move on. But to close, where does that leave us? Three brief final conclusions to close. First is this, if you are a Christian, you live with this tension. The Christian life is a battle, it's a fight. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we still do sin. We know that we're forgiven, but we keep struggling to do God's will. The problem is, I want to say this to you, the problem is if there is no struggle, uh, if there is no tension, if you've brought, bought the devil's lie that actually you're pretty good, or if you don't care about the sin in your life, then I want to say to you, be worried. Be very, very worried, because that suggests you might still be a slave to sin and not yet a Christian. Second thing, we long for Jesus to return, don't we? We don't just long for Jesus to return to put an end to the awful things we, we prayed about earlier. You see, we, put, we long for Jesus to return to put an end to this tension. Sometimes we can get so used to the tension, the struggle, we don't believe it will ever end. But when Christ returns, there will be no more civil war. We will live as God intended. So pray for Jesus' return. Come, Lord Jesus. But thirdly and finally, I want to stress, this is not defeatism. I'd hate you to listen to this and say, oh, that's the reality. Even Paul struggled with sin. I'll just keep sinning. Doesn't matter. Some people read this and say that. That's not what he's saying. You are not a slave to sin any longer. You have the spirit of God. You've been freed. Yes, there is this tension. Yes, it's a battle. Yes, you will fail at certain points. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, we are able to put off sin in our lives and put on righteousness. We are able to win the individual fights. Over the course of your life, you can grow in godliness and put off sin and put on good things. But you will not reach perfection, not until Christ returns. But we do have the weapons to fight the fight. That's the reality of the Christian life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful book of Romans. We thank you that despite the problem of our sin, that you have dealt with it through the death of Jesus and we can take a hold of that forgiveness and that righteousness by faith alone. But now, Father, we thank you for this picture of the reality of the Christian life. And we thank you for that we know that even the Apostle Paul struggled with this tension. And so help us to fight the fight. Help us as followers of Jesus to seek to live for Jesus. Help us to not lose heart. And Father, we pray, come Lord Jesus once and for all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.